I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Every summer, thousands of passionate readers and writers gather at the Sun Valley Writers Conference in the shared belief that the power of literature begins on the page, but doesn't end there. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, the conference literary director, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our podcast, Beyond the Page. In this episode, we'll be hearing from novelist Anthony Doerr, whose novel All the Light We Cannot See won the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and spent more than two and a half years on the New York Times bestseller list. Despite or because of that extraordinary success, what Dorr most wants to tell us about is what he calls the beautiful art of failure. This is for everybody here who tries to make stuff, whether you're making dishwashers or quilts or books, like a bunch of these people over here. Everybody here is trying to make something. My mother was the sort of mother who made her own peanut butter, baked the wheat bread she spread it on, and grew the alfalfa sprouts she put on top. Every morning when we were kids, my older brothers and I would file downstairs and swallow one spoonful of wheat germ and another of cod liver oil, and then eat oatmeal our mother made for us and walk to the bus stop wearing mittens that our mother made for us. If mom could have built the diesel Volkswagen she drove us around in, she would have. So when October came around, believe me, we were not permitted to purchase our Halloween costumes from a store. Indeed, to my mother, to attach the adjective store-bought to the noun costume was to indicate a certain air of indolence and underachievement, and perhaps even a faint suggestion of bad parenting. As in, oh, Marty Mortensen? He'll probably be a store-bought Superman again. 
After all, as the mythical life of Marty Mortensen demonstrated perfectly, there existed in our town certain parents who actually took their children to the royal-sounding restaurants on Mayfield Road known as Burger King and Dairy Queen. <laughs> Establishments known only to the door boys as magical Shangri-Las, full of blissful children playing with insanely desirable toys that we whisked past on the way to school, our lunchboxes stocked with heirloom carrots and home-baked pumpernickel. <laughs> when I was seven, we received an invitation, store-bought, to an after-trick-or-treating neighborhood Halloween party at David Petronzio's house. The party, our invitation proclaimed, would culminate in a costume-judging contest. The word up and down Shadow Hill Lane was that the winners would receive trophies. So mom drove me to the Bainbridge Public Library, which was what mom did when confronted with pretty much any challenge. I selected a book titled Super Simple Creative Costumes. The costumes inside were, I was to learn later, neither super nor simple. But after paging through the book for five minutes, I decided that I would win the biggest trophy by dressing myself as a knight in armor. So I brought the book home, the costume in question featured a drawing of a dashing kid in full plate mail, plumed helmet tucked under one arm, his jousting steed and stone keep sketched into the background. The instructions prescribed that the armor be made of 21 separate pieces of poster board covered with aluminum foil and held together by 300 little brass rivets. <laughs> so mom drove me to Drug Mart a destination second only to the library and its usefulness to the Dwarf family. I had decided I wanted to be a scary knight, a kind of badass Sir Galahad. So I picked out black poster board. They only had nine sheets of black poster board at Drug Mart, so I bought 12 white sheets too and spent two successive nights coloring them in with black markers. I worked for two weeks on this costume, the breastplate, the cuffs, the leggings. I fashioned a sword out of a wrapping paper tube and foil, and even created a shield with flames drawn on it, which wasn't in the super simple creative costumes book, but seemed essential. And on the night before Halloween, it became time to make my helmet. In the book's drawings, the princely cartoon boy wore a medieval headpiece with a chin guard and working visor and an ostrich feather plume fixed jauntily to the top. Even now, 33 years later, if I were to fly to Japan and train with an origami master for 13 years, <laughs> I still would not possess the skill to construct that helmet. So late that evening, I decided to execute my own design, looping the poster board into a cylinder and gashing some mismatched eye holes in the front with an X-Acto knife and gluing the whole thing shut. When Halloween night came and I put on my suit of poster board armor, I could barely walk or see. <laughs> if I had been able to see myself from the outside, I would have seen a child executioner in ski gloves with a paper trash can on his head a wilting black poster in one hand and a giant silver phallus in the other. <laughs> but I was seven uninterested in mirrors. And in my mind, I was cloaked in armor. I was invincible. I was the Black Knight. Except that by the third house that Halloween, it started to rain. <laughs> and soon the glue on my helmet gave way and my shield drooped 
and the magic marker on the white poster board started to bleed and one of my cuffs sloughed off and we lived in the country where the houses were a good eighth of a mile apart. And by the time I limped up David Petronzio's driveway with my tattered shield, I had little more than a soggy mass of black pulp piled up over my shoulders and a purplish magic marker stain seeping through my white thermal long underwear. Inside, as you might imagine, Batman and Darth Vader's and Incredible Hulks and Princess Leia's paraded around, and there was even an Ichabod crane with a real pumpkin on his head, and everyone looked well like who they had dressed up to be. In the garage, three trophies were arranged on a card table, tall blue ones with a little golden baseball player on top. Mrs. Petronzio gave out the awards, and Ichabod Crane got first place, Wonder Woman took second, and I don't remember who got third. Needless to say, this was still a decade before the noun child was regularly paired beside the noun self-esteem in the parlance of parents. I did not take home a trophy that night, but I did win a prize, and it was for a category that some kind, commiserative mom, perhaps Mrs. Petronzio herself, upon seeing me humped in a corner, must have improvised on the spot, and that category was titled Most Original. When she announced it at the end of the contest, the kids were no longer paying attention, and I stepped shakily forward. Since there were no trophies left to give out, one of the dads clapped me on my soggy back. Then I walked home in the rain. I was seven and had no idea what original meant. My mom tried to explain it to me, you know, unusual, different, inventive. But I said, my costume was terrible. She said, your costume was not terrible. I said, it was the worst one by far. She said, it was beautiful. So how do we get from a boy wearing a ruined homemade Halloween costume, trying to make sense of feeling like a failure despite his mother's loving praise and support, to an accomplished writer in a basement office struggling to find the words for a story he's been laboring over for years? As Tony Dorr tells it, the answer has to do with language, with a never-ending effort to find the right words, and only the right words, to describe the particular sensations of being alive, whether that life belongs to a novelist in Boise, Idaho, or to a blind 12-year-old French girl in World War II. 18 months ago, I completed my fifth book, a long novel set during World War II, 10 years of work, three trips to Europe, God knows how many afternoons of despair. During the last push to complete the book, I worked long days, often imprisoning myself in a desk chair for nine to 10 hour stints with only a single break to walk to Albertson's supermarket to stare dazedly at the produce for a while like a caveman before purchasing a chocolate donut and eating it mindlessly <laughs> while I walked back to my desk. One November day, I spent a whole afternoon reworking a three-sentence paragraph that had given me fits for years, wrestling with the following moment. A 12-year-old blind girl sits with her father in a train station in Paris in June of 1940 as the German army enters the city. I'd written, suitcases clang in and out of what might be doorways, and trunks slide across tiles, and babies cry, and little dogs yap and a conductor's whistle blows, and some kind of big machinery coughs to a start and then dies. Sweat prickles the top of Mahrilor's scalp. 
She waits on the thin rim of whatever she's sitting on and breathes and tries to calm her stomach, tries to gather the city in her imagination, cars thronged on the avenues, a military ambulance keening past, hundreds of wet umbrellas pressed against the station gates. After months of looking at photographs, years of considering and reconsidering this character, I got to the point where I could see this scene quite clearly, hanging there on the screen of my imagination as majestically and menacingly as I once saw my Black Knight. The Germans were on the edge of the city, but few Parisians had actually seen them yet. Some still refused to believe the invasion was real, while others were already fleeing, while still others wanted desperately to flee, but could not because they had babies or jobs or elderly parents to care for or were disabled themselves. But that November day, when I went back and reread the rubbishy language I used to evoke that moment, I didn't particularly approve of any of it. Suitcases clang. Do suitcases clang? Or do they rattle or bang or clatter or clunk? If I'm going to take my book seriously, shouldn't I search eBay for 1930s French suitcases, buy one, jam it full of antique clothes, run to a train station and see what sorts of sounds it makes? Also, were there even doorways in Austerlitz Station in 1940? Was there tile on the floors? Did conductors carry whistles in 1940? Were they even called conductors? Maybe they were brakemen or stewards or coach attendants. Or what if all the normal train employees had been sent to the front that day? And what if this was an event that any proper and legitimate war historian would know immediately? Oh, of course, the infamous Parisian train employee draft of 1940. <laughs> and what if I am the only fool who doesn't know about this event? Because let's face it, I'm eating a donut in a basement in Boise, Idaho, making this stuff up. I'm getting, my wife would be happy. I'm getting a lot of claps for donut eating, maybe. <laughs> so after an hour of tinkering, I decided on the most prudent kind of revision, cut the whole first sentence. Earlier today, Lawrence Wright used this delicious phrase. He called it literary liposuction. <laughs> Sweat prickles the top of Marie-Laure's scalp. According to my Webster's New International, prickle means to prick slightly, as with prickles, and to cover with pricks or dots. Is this a proper evocation of what might be happening to Mahri? Do I want my reader to imagine a bald girl with a welt-covered scalp? <laughs> Do I want to use a word that sounds so much like pickle? And is the top really where sweat comes out of a person's head? Doesn't it come out behind the ears or around the neck? So this is true after spending a good half hour on WebMD.com trying to figure out where sweat glands are located in the human head, I came to my senses and decided better to just cut that sentence too. Then there's that third sentence, a linguistic garden of fail. She waits on the thin rim of whatever she's sitting on and breathes and tries to calm her stomach, tries to gather the city in her imagination, cars thronged on the avenues, a military ambulance keening past, hundreds of wet umbrellas pressed against the station gates. Do I need to repeat the verb tries? How would Maori know that the sirens belong to a military ambulance? Do the sirens of military ambulances indeed have a different pitch? 
Were there even military ambulances in the city on that June day? Why wouldn't all of them have been at the front? Did I make that up or did I actually see one in a photograph? Shouldn't I have footnoted that in an earlier draft somewhere? And was it raining during the evacuation? I think it was. Didn't I read about that somewhere? But in which book? I should dig out meteorological records from that day. But wait, first of all, why, for crying out loud, am I letting my narrator employ so many visual images in the second half of a paragraph in which the point of view character is blind? Writers, of course, can't forever live in a vacuum. Sometimes you have to get out of the house and into the real world. Deep in the trenches of his Sisyphean struggle against cliché, Dor realizes he needs some exercise. But there at his local gym, he meets a rival he never could have imagined. So that afternoon I stared at this one paragraph for over two hours, whittled the whole thing down to a single clause, Mahrilor tries to calm her nerves, watched a three-minute wimp.com video of lemurs eating strawberries and cream, and reconciled myself to yet another provisional failure, failure number 45,921. Then I decided exercise might clear my head. So I jogged to the Boise YMCA and climbed onto a stationary bicycle. After pedaling along for a few minutes, a woman climbed aboard the bike beside mine, put on some headphones, and switched on a little Kindle. E-readers, as you know, have changed things. You can no longer immediately discern what someone is reading simply by glancing at the cover. Now you have to do some snooping. The woman was maybe 50, fit, wearing a bright tank top, dark eye makeup. Her shiny hair was yarded back into a ponytail, beaded bracelets jogged up and down on her wrists. In short, she seemed a very well-put-together person. We pedaled a few minutes side by side, and she turned pages with one finger, stroking them out of the way rather eagerly, I thought. And I began to steal glances. Would she be reading some Anne Carson or Alice Munro, Wallace Stegner or Richard Ford? Maybe if I was very lucky, there'd be some Virginia Woolf on there, and a few of Woolf's dazzling sentences could filter into my head while I pedaled and helped me improve my lousy paragraph. Over her shoulder, I began to read. Reaching forward, Christian trails the tip of the crop. (laughs) From my forehead down the length of my nose so I can smell the leather and over my parted panting lips. The first thought I had was, what kind of crop, corn? The second was, do lips pant? Isn't it more accurately a mouth that pants? Or maybe it's our entire respiratory system that pants. The third was, how does a first-person narrator know why Christian is trailing the crop? The fourth was, I think I know what book this is. (laughs) My bicycling neighbor swiped pages hungrily. The next dozen sentences I refuse to repeat to you here. (laughs) Finally, she got to, abruptly, I wake, gasping for breath, covered in sweat, and feeling the aftershocks of my orgasm. Holy hell, I'm completely disorientated. What the hell just happened? I'm in my bedroom alone. How? Why? I sit bolt upright, shocked. Wow. 
Like every other person in the English-speaking world, I had heard of the novel she was reading, of course, but I had thus far kept myself from actually experiencing any of its sentences. Here I was spending 50 hours a week trying to eradicate all the phrases in my novel that sounded like sweat prickles the top of Mahri's scalp, spending 100 painful minutes that very afternoon trying to understand what it feels like, what it really feels like to be a blind girl sweating in a Parisian train station listening to the fulcrum of world history pivot. And here was a first-time novelist writing a sentence like, I avoid her piercing green eyes. Apparently spending no effort at all trying to decouple eyes from its tenacious, clingy boyfriend piercing and selling approximately six gazillion copies every day. And so as I pedaled away on my bike and my neighbor pedaled away on hers, both of us working up sweats, presumably for different reasons, I had a miniature existential crisis. Why, I wondered, can E.L. James get away with letting a character gasp for breath when she doesn't need the two words for breath since what we gasp for when we gasp is most clearly breath? (laughs) And why would I spend an hour trying to come up with a new way to describe a sweaty scalp when I might reach a lot more readers if I just introduced a riding crop and the adjective panting? The answers, it turns out, have everything to do with my mother and that suit of armor I wore home in the rain. What are the true enduring connections between the words failure and original? Between cliché and art? How is it possible that the struggle to avoid the one may yet lead us to the beauty of the other? As Doris says, it all goes back to his childhood, to his mom, to an overly ambitious Halloween costume ruined in the rain, and to his unquenched desire to dream something even better. The trouble with cliches is that because of their repeated use, they gradually become invisible to us. Cliches don't ask us to see exactly what makes an eye glint, or what's so clear about a crystal, or what it actually feels like to be seen with piercing eyes, to truly evoke what we mean by a glance from a friend that seems to pare away all our defenses and expose truths we thought we had taken pains to hide. As writers, we might unwittingly pluck a cliche here and there from our memories because we are in a rush, or because we tell ourselves we'll fix it later, or because we're being lazy some under-rested Tuesday. We choose them both at the sentence and the narrative levels because we are afraid of becoming obtuse, afraid to divorce prickle from its clingy partner sweat, afraid to fail. We don't have the power or the will to invent a new grammar, so we use the grammar that the people who have gone before us have used. But when I commit little failures like this, when I scramble to employ the clumsy symbols of language to try to articulate things that are ultimately beyond language, who exactly am I failing? The night after that Halloween costume contest in 1979, I lay awake in bed for a long time and finally decided two things. One, that my mother did not know what she was talking about. And two, that original was a synonym for crappy. (laughs) For years I thought this. Anytime the word original was employed in anything, I ran from it. To be original was to be lousy. To be original was to be avoided. To be original was to fail. 
I wanted nothing more than to be the anonymous kid who sat down at the lunch table with a bologna sandwich, something I was never allowed to do, a bag of Fritos and a nice conformist carton of chocolate milk. Now I have to remind myself every day that it is okay to accept failure, that language is only an arbitrary system of semblances and symbols, that languages live alongside living people, billowing around us in an ever-changing, naturally selecting cloud. Words mean more than one thing to more than one person, and they mean one thing one day and another thing the next. In practice, as Bertrand Russell said, language is always more or less vague so that what we assert is never quite precise. And he was right. Can the word tree ever do any more than approximate the great shivering, growing, clattering, blooming, steadfast thing that is a tree? Can the word marriage ever come remotely close to suggesting the fortifying, confusing, exhilarating journey that is a marriage? In the spaces between words and sentences and paragraphs lurk snags and silences and pits into which we all as readers and writers inevitably must fall. You can never control all the outcomes of any sentence you write. The best you can do is to make the thing as carefully as you can and then let go. Maybe as Richard Ford said last night, a success means a reader has read all the words. I thought I'd end with a section from Stephen Milhauser's 1996 novel, Martin Dressler. If you guys don't know Milhauser, you might give him a chance. He's an excellent artist. In the novel, our protagonist, Martin Dressler, he's built a series of hotels, each one more popular, outlandish, and commercially successful than the last. But now, at the end of the novel, Martin has built his final hotel. It's called the Grand Cosmo, a strange and massive vertical labyrinth. And people have not flocked to it the way they have to his other buildings. And the hotel is empty, and Martin is trying to understand how he feels about this. For a building was a dream, a dream made stone, the dream lurking in the stone, so that the stone wasn't stone only, but dream. More dream than stone. Dream stone and dream steel, forever unlasting. Friendly powers had led him along the dark paths of dream. They had been good to him. To him, Martin Dressler, son of Otto Dressler, seller of cigars and tobacco. For really, he had traveled a long way since the days when he rolled out old Tecumseh into the warm shade. For he had done as he liked. He had gone his own way, built his castle in the air. And if in the end he had dreamed the wrong dream, the dream that others didn't wish to enter, then that was the way of dreams. It was only to be expected. He had no desire to have dreamt otherwise. Is this not Milhauser ruminating on commercial and critical success? Isn't he questioning the ways we measure results? Isn't he saying, hey, I dreamed my dream. And if you don't want to enter this dream, at least I dreamed my dream as well as I could. And I have no desire to have dreamt otherwise. If all of writing, as Thomas Bernhard suggested, is a catastrophe, if our only tools are to use our clumsy, ever-evolving system of symbols to fumble after a vision that dwells in a universe beyond symbols, if we can never fully realize the staggering promise of the unwritten, then why not measure success simply by asking ourselves if we dreamed our dreams with as much care as we could? No matter how few people bought it at the airport or clicked like on it or retweeted it or even brought it into the realm of their attention at all. 
There are hours when I let myself believe that my successes are a positive newspaper review or a royalty check or a fan letter from a reader in Finland. And there are hours when I let myself believe that my failures are the paragraphs I've abandoned, the stories that have crumpled in on themselves, the essays that will never see the light of day. But those understandings of success and failure I'm learning very slowly are fleeting and hollow. The only kind of lasting success I've found is work, the Sisyphean routine of trimming away dead words, testing phrases, trying and failing to stick a probe into that shifting, squirming, mercurial, multifaceted thing that we call the truth. To dream as well as we can for the joy of the dreaming. That's the only kind of success you can control anyway. A strange and unpredictable breach will always exist between what we can imagine and what we can execute, between what we want to make and what we are able to make. The important thing I've come to believe is that we embrace that breach. As I try to immerse myself in a new novel, I fail at the sentence level every three minutes. I try to get inside a character, make a sentence more musical, fill it with brighter images. I try to write a scene about a character getting nervous, and the first thing that comes to my mind is sweat prickles the top of her scalp. <laughs> I erase the sentence, I try again, I fail again. It has taken me 30 years to appreciate the wisdom of my mother, that the beauty is not in the result, but in the attempt to build our castles in the clouds, to sew a quilt, start a painting, build a company, write a song, design a building, bake a pie, raise a family, engineer an automobile, even to write a single satisfying paragraph. We need to live with the fear that we will stink, that no one will pay any attention, that we will blunder about like fools, the fear that we are going to take our glorious, flawless ideas and butcher them on the altar of reality. We all need to be willing to pile up a big mess of black poster board and walk around with it in the rain. Thanks, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. To hear Anthony Doerr's unedited talk, to explore the free archive of Sun Valley Writers' Conference recordings, and to learn more about the conference, please visit svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shilliday, Michael Neese, and the Network Studios. Network Studios.